0: This week we begin a series in the book of Leviticus, our Old Testament reading will be the first chapter of Leviticus and our New Testament complementary passage is 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. So with your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2, in honor of God's word, please stand. First Peter, chapter two, beginning in verse nine, hear God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As far as in the reading of God's word, please turn to Leviticus chapter 1 and continuing in the reading of God's word. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the side of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall Arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by his wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thus far, in the reading of God's prayer, in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we have read, we come to the preaching and to the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes, speak to us by that word, by your spirit, make us alive and help us to see our Savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So I open the service by asking this question, what do you picture? What, what, what is the picture that comes into your head when you hear the word priest? What is a priest? Is he a muttering ancient thing in black and white that is doing these arcane rituals? Or is it a Roman Catholic, you know, the guy with the collar and little thingy in the middle that never gets married and, and, and that's what a priest is? Well, as we already read, Peter tells us that you, the church are a kingdom of priests. And clearly, here in Leviticus, a big part of the focus is going to be on the priests. You've already heard about Aaron and his sons. You heard that throughout the chapter. But why? Not just what is a priest, but why do we need one? Why are priests? So important in Scripture. Again, to answer the question, it's helpful if we take a step back. You've got this story that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And it begins with God creating man, male and female, made in his image in perfect harmony with him and with the creation around him. But then sin enters into the picture. Adam and Eve disobey God, and they say, We will live by our own moral standards. We will be as God, knowing right from wrong. We will establish our own standards of truth and morality and justice. And it, of course, brings nothing but death. It brings complete death into the world. It brings death to the people of God themselves. The people of God end up down in Egypt, oppressed by Pharaoh. And out of this land of sin and death, God calls them in Exodus with a mighty and outstretched hand. He does so in ways that clearly demonstrate his superiority over Pharaoh. All those plagues, every single one of them, was designed to show that God was more powerful than any of the Egyptian deities. And he brings them out of the land of Egypt, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he says, the purpose of my deliverance is so you can worship. They come to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 18, and we begin this section that really takes place here at Mount Sinai. The children of Israel are camped here for a year, and they're sitting there at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're receiving God's law, and they're responding with the promise of obedience. But at the end of Exodus, if you'll notice, Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. Exodus closes with these words, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then we jump forward to the very opening verses of Leviticus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And that's an important point. That's an important detail. Because Exodus closes with this glorious picture of Eden. The tabernacle is a recreation of Eden. The holy place. This place where God dwells, where there are the 12 loaves of showbread, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel, where there's the lampstand shining on that, where there's the sweet smell of the aroma of the incense of God, of the prayers of God's people rising up before Him. This glorious place of harmony and peace and safety right there in the middle of the wilderness. This glorious place. That we can be at peace, that we can have security, that we can be home, despite the fact that we're traveling without homes, despite the fact that we're strangers and pilgrims, despite the fact that we are progressing through a place of danger, hurt, weariness, pain, sickness, disease, death. There's a place of security. There's a place of hope. There's a place of light and peace and fellowship. But the book ends with Moses, the great man of God, standing outside. And Leviticus tells us how to get in. Not only how to get in, but then also how to live once we're in. Now, the great theme of the book of Leviticus is the answer to this question. We already read it in Psalm 15. It's, it's humanity's perennial question. Humanity has always asked this question. How can we live lives that are at peace, harmony, purpose? Let me give you an example of just how relevant this is. This past week, a tragic event took place that touched many of us personally. I know it touched me personally. Those of you who know me know I'm from Nashville. And if you know me well enough, you've been around me, you can talk to my kids, we worshiped at Covenant Press. And when I heard the news of Chad and the death of his nine-year-old daughter, the first thought that went through my mind, was could we all just stop for a hot second? Could we just hit pause? Could we just weep? Can we just do that? Can we, can we hit the pause button before we dehumanize everybody involved, from the shooter to the victims? We do dehumanize every one of them and turn this into our agenda our campaign, either this clearly shows the destructive nature of the transgender ideology or it clearly shows the destructive nature of guns and our need to... We instantly, without skipping a beat, went straight into co-opting horrible, horrible events. Parents who have had a 28-year-old daughter who clearly has not been well-adjusted and who clearly they have been working with and struggling with. She lived in their home at the age of 28. These are clearly parents that love a daughter that clearly is struggling with identity issues and all sorts of stuff. Who knows what all? A very broken person who goes and lives out that brokenness in a place where little children are the victims, could we just stop there? Can we just weep with those who weep? Mourn with those who mourn? Do we have to take it instantly to the political? And the answer, of course, is yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we've got to immediately, while... while The scene is still covered in police tape. We are going to march. We are going to protest. We're going to decide what was right and what was wrong. Every single ethical choice, every single one, every single ethical choice that you and I make By that, what I mean is an ethical choice is should I do this, should I do that? Is it right to do this? Is it right to do that? And every single solitary ethical choice that you make, ranging from how you vote or how you engage in the political arena, all the way down to something as simple as how do you change lanes? (laughs) I mean, it's just a polite thing to do to turn your blinker on, right? It's a polite thing to do to wait until there's a gap. Well, not if you live in Northern Virginia. If you live in Northern Virginia and wait until there's a gap, you're dumb because <laughs> there's never a gap. <laughs> if you turn on your blinker, it may just mean that you're driving down the road and forgot to turn your blinker on. It's better just to swerve on in. Cut them off. Let them know. Or if somebody does that to you, let them know. Honk <laughs> your horn. Make appropriate hand gestures. Everything is ethics, brothers and sisters. Everything is good or bad. Every decision you make. Little children, when mommy says clean your room. When mommy says do the dishes. How do you do it? Do you do it? How is it that we are to live these wisdom decisions? Everything that we do as human beings to declare something right or to declare something wrong is a reflection of a knowledge that there is right and that there is wrong. And that reflection of the knowledge that there is something that is right and there is something that is wrong is a reflection of the knowledge, Paul says in Romans 1, it's written in every one of your hearts, that there is a God. And that order, creation, your DNA, acknowledges there is an objective standard of what is right and what is wrong. That's something that all humanity agrees on. That's something we agree on across the board. Because as soon as we politicized that horrible, horrible incident at Covenant Press in Nashville this week, as soon as we politicized it, what were we doing as a society? We were instantly saying, this is right, this is wrong. We all acknowledged that profoundly messed up 28-year-olds should not go into schools and shoot 9-year-olds. We're all on the same page there. I didn't hear anybody saying, well, that was okay. Everybody agrees that that's a bad thing. The question then becomes, what caused it? What led to this bad thing? Which becomes an issue of right and wrong, choices and lack thereof, society and pressures and all of the... Beloved, that's called ethics. Ethics. And Leviticus is here to give us the proper foundation. To get back into the holy of holies, to live lives that reflect Eden, to live lives that reflect that we have come back to the garden, is to live lives that are ordered God's way, that come back to the holy of holies that come back to the holy place through the means that God has brought. And beloved, it's not something that is isolated to the church. It's not something that's isolated to Christianity, to you and me. It is the basic DNA of humanity. There are things that are right. There are things that are wrong. And how do we live according to the good? And that's exactly what Leviticus is about. That's exactly how do we get back there. I want to ask you this question. When you consider our current culture and the status of our general conversation from politics to social media to the news to whatever, When you consider Senate hearings, congressional testimonies, when you consider the panels on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, PBS, whatever, when you you consider the talking heads, the pundits on your radio station that maybe you listen to on a daily basis, please answer me this question. Not out loud, do it in your head. <laughs> but answer me Would you say that a unifying theme of these voices is compassion? Would you say that a unifying theme of these voices is grace? Do you see grace in the way that Democrats and Republicans speak to and about each other? Do you see compassion and grace in the way that people of differing opinions speak to one another and speak about one another? And the answer is no, we don't. You don't see compassion. You don't see grace at all. At least I don't. And it's only here in the church, and it's only when you and I are grounded here in Leviticus, that you and I can understand compassion and grace. And I want to look very quickly, that was all by way of introduction, but don't worry, everything else will be short. I want to look very quickly at two things that stand out in this passage. One is your worship, and the second is your standing before God, your worship, how it is that you enter into the presence of God. And there's two verses in here. There's actually three sections of sacrifice. One is the bull from from the herd. One is a goat or a lamb from the flock. And the third is a bird. And both the bulls, the ones from the herd and the ones from the flocks, God is the one who makes a point that it must be a male without blemish. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles and who are Christians and for whom this is not totally foreign material, you kind of know exactly where we're going. (laughs) The fact that repeatedly we need to find a male without blemish to die so that we may have peace with God, finally then leads us up to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I want you to see that it's baked in to the very opening words of how to come home, how to get back right with God, how to be at peace with God, how to how to come back with God, is not merely that there must be the death of another. There must be someone else who dies for me, but that someone else must be pure. That someone else must be holy. Did you notice both with the bulls and with the sheep, they make a point of the priests are supposed to wash the entrails and wash the legs before they burn it on the altar. Why do you think that would be? Because if you've ever done any slaughtering work, if you've ever hunted deer (laughs) and you've had to field dress anything like that, you know it gets mighty messy and you need to go with a hose pipe when you're field dressing a deer or bringing it home and doing it in your garage. You need to clean this out because the stuff gets nasty. And if you don't cut very carefully, you can nick the wrong thing and make it even worse. God demands that his offering be clean. God demands that his offering be perfect. God demands that his offering be the best that you and I have to give. And beloved, from Cain and Abel all the way down until today... The temptation has been to give God our leftovers. I'll show up on Sunday morning, but I may be completely passed out because I stayed up until 2 a.m. partying with my bros Saturday. I may show up on Sunday morning, but that's what you get. I'm here. (laughs) And that's exactly what Cain did. Cain shows up and says, I'm here. What more do you want? And God says, actually quite a bit more. I want quite a bit more from you. I want your best. I want you all in. I want you obedient. I want you to hear my voice. We're going through the call of discipleship in adult Sunday school. And one of the things that we focused on this morning is that absolute single-minded obedience is very simply what discipleship is. It's obey. And it's the calling of every single disciple. Not the best disciples. Not the serious disciples. Not the disciples who get little collars around their necks or whatever. You, you, the sheep, you, the children, you, the followers of Jesus Christ are called to be his and to be all in. You've got to come before God. And if you understand this model, then what is the outflow of that going to be? It's going to be that your approach to God, consistent with this model, consistent with what we've just read in chapter 1, is going to be humble. Aaron and his sons don't march in here saying, Hey God, I gave you ten lambs, you owe me a thousand. I sowed my seed of faith, hallelujah. None of that garbage. This is a humility before God, a recognition that I deserve to die. You notice the priests keep throwing the blood on the side of the altar. Just pause on that one for a second. You ever seen a Home Depot bucket? Those big orange buckets in Home Depot? Every bull has two of those. Two buckets, five-gallon buckets full of blood. Five-gallon buckets full. Two of them splashed against the sides of this altar for every single sacrifice. That's just the bulls. The sheep and the goats come with their own blood that also gets splashed. The birds, their blood gets splashed. That altar was a bloody mess. That altar was grotesque. That altar was disgusting. It was absolutely drenched in animal blood over and over and over again. And it's a recognition this is my blood which should be dashed against the side of this altar. It's a very visual sign. A very visual symbol. Now beloved, if you and I come before God with humility, with obedience, desiring to give Him our absolute best and recognizing that He accepts us not because of our works but because this death has taken place and he is satisfied. If you and I come that way, it changes everything. Christianity does not become another version of cancel culture. Christianity becomes people who have received grace and compassion. Living lives of grace and compassion, speaking out grace and compassion. That's what your worship does. That's what the Lord's Day does. That's what Sabbath worship does. It's why the Lord's Day is an oasis in our wilderness journey. Because it's in the Lord's day that you and I come apart from all of that and come together and just marinate here. Remember, oh, yes, there's a lot of blood that stands between me and God. There's an awful lot of death that I bring to this table. Oh, but praise Jesus, He is enough. He has satisfied His Father's wrath. He cried out finally. When David in Psalm 15 says, Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? He knew Leviticus. David had all of this. They understood that this is always searching the heart. It's mankind's problem. And the answer is, when you come and acknowledge that you deserve His wrath, His punishment, His justice. But instead, you get His love, His mercy, and His forgiveness. And it's only because He visited that wrath, that punishment, and justice upon the Lamb of God. The one without blemish. Jesus Christ. It was your sin that put him there until it was accomplished. And when you and I can say that, we're going to be a lot more compassionate. We're going to be a lot more gracious and gentle. The second thing I want you to see very quickly here from this passage is the standing before God that his worshipers have. Did you notice a common refrain? A common refrain as we read through that passage. That all of this worship is going to produce something. What's it going to produce? It's a sweet smelling aroma before God. Did you, did you notice that? The, the sweet smelling aroma is at the uh, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, there in verse 9. A pleasing aroma to the Lord in verse 13. A pleasing aroma to the Lord in verse 17. Why is God pleased? I mean, it's a fair question, I think. You and I sitting here today, you sitting here, me standing here, (laughs) you and I worshiping today, is God kind of sitting up in heaven going, phew, good. I was kind of wondering if I was going to get any worship. I've I've been needing some worship. I've been going Monday to Saturday. Nobody's worshipped me. I need, give, give, give me affirmation. I need, of course not. It's blasphemous even to think that way. Why is your worship pleasing before God? Leviticus says it is. It says three times here. That is a pleasing aroma. And the answer is. God desires. That all of his children. All who are created in his image. Be at peace and at home with him. He says I take no delight in the death of the wicked. Now. God calls his children. Christ died for his sheep. And you and I are made alive to God in the same way that a heart of stone is replaced by a heart of flesh. But my point is not to guard against universalism or to teach universalism either way. I'm certainly not teaching it. My point is this. The sweet smell of that burnt offering before the Lord is the sweet smell of sin forgiven, of redemption accomplished, of atonement, sins covered over, peace with God, walking in Eden again the way That he designed you and me to walk. Fellowshipping with him. Carrying that Eden ethic into our work. Carrying that Eden ethic into the various places that he calls us to be. Changing lanes. (laughs) Everything from politics to lane changes. All of it is A pleasing aroma to God. I think of yard signs that have been prominent over the past several, couple of years at least. And one of those yard signs that I always kind of roll my eyes at a little bit is the yard sign, hate has no home here. Because I always wonder, okay, can I put up a yard sign that says, here's hate's home? <laughs> Who is it that's putting up the yard sign going, no, 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 hate has a home here. Nobody thinks we should be hateful. Hate has no home here is nothing if not virtue signaling. It's, it's letting people know that I feel really pious. It's letting people know that I love and care a little bit better than you do. And isn't that ultimately kind of what our ethic becomes? Beloved, if you and I start here, you don't need a yard sign saying hate has no home here. (laughs) If you and I start here, hate will have no home here. (laughs) If you and I start here, if you and I live here, If you and I are living out this awareness that Jesus Christ is the only reason that I can be loving, Jesus Christ, He who loved me first, is the only reason I can do anything good. And all that I can do, the best that I can do, is say, come and see. That's the best. That's when I'm at my absolute best is not when I'm telling you my wisdom, not when I'm telling you my inner philosophies or whatever garbage that I would want to tell you, but when I'm saying, look, look and see. This one who knows me this one who has loved me from the foundations of the earth, he is lovely, he is beautiful, he is right, he's forgiving, he's compassionate, he's merciful, he's my shepherd, he is the one who leads me and tends me and guards me and guides me and brings me home when I stray. He's so good. Won't you come and meet him too? Won't you know him as well? It will bring healing in your life. It'll bring healing in your heart, in your marriage, in your school, in, in, in every aspect that you touch. It'll bring wholeness and it'll bring healing. But beloved, it's only when we begin in Leviticus. It's only when we begin here. I bring my very best not to earn a thing in the world, but I bring my very best as thanksgiving to God because He gave His very best. He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem you and me, sinners. That's why Leviticus is important. It's a difficult read. I'll I'll grant it. It's a difficult slog. All the birds and the turtle doves and the ringing and the splashing and all the stuff. It's a lot of details and it's very repetitive. And I'm glad for that because I need repeating. I need the repetition. Because everything in my head, everything in my wicked, wicked heart says the redemption that Jesus Christ applied, that the Holy Spirit accomplished, All of that, yes, well and good, but now what? And Leviticus just says, nope. (laughs) Every time. Over and over and over again. Every time you walk into God's place. There's blood. There's sweet smelling aroma. There's the best I can give. And a recognition. That I deserve his wrath. I deserve death. Because I sin. And beloved, so do you. Nobody, nobody disputes that. Anybody in here who will say, I am absolutely perfect. I make every right decision every time. Never messed up even once in my life. Anybody in here can say that? If you are, You need to go see a psychiatrist, because you are so delusional, I can't help you. (laughs) But beloved, there is one who is a male, without blemish. There is one who is God himself. Jesus Christ came.